Hello Sword People, welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher and writer. Join me for interviews with historical fencing instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training and bring the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. I'm here today with Shani Nishri, who is a historical martial arts instructor and founder of Stratford Swords. Uh, she's also a software engineer in the games industry. We first interacted, though, when she posted some photos of a very ambitious woodworking project she's working on. And we will be talking a little bit about woodwork today because I'm a complete woodworking nerd and it turns out that Shani is turning into one. She's great. There so, we go. <laughs> without further ado, Shani, welcome to the show. Hello. How are you doing? <laughs> very well thank you so whereabouts in the world are you i imagine somewhere close to stratford yes um not the stratford in london but stratford upon avon so the home of shakespeare lovely uh what took you there uh my walk so i walked in california just before for a small search company called google um and i, was I think i think i've heard of them yeah, it's like the competition to duck, duck a go, isn't it? <laughs> That's right, yeah. Um, and I was completely burnt out uh, from my job. And I was looking to leave the company and get back to the games industry instead of general tech. My ex-colleague told me, hey, come work with me at Unity. I was like, yeah, sounds like fun. Um and I also wanted to get back to the UK, which is a bit crazy, I'm told. Uh, hey, I live... <laughs> yes, why on earth would you want to live in the UK? I like the weather. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> you are the only person I have ever met who says they want to live in the UK for the weather. Yeah, well, uh, so I, I'm originally from Israel and I didn't like it being too hot and a bunch of other reasons, but let's avoid for now. Okay. <laughs> and um, then I moved to live with my co- currently ex-partner in mm-hmm. Guildford for a couple of years. And I actually really, really liked it there. But then okay. I was allured to um, move to California, and I actually really hated it there. <laughs> so I decided to go back to a place I liked. Sensible. And um, then... I was told you can come work in Brighton, which I wasn't too excited about for some reason, which people gave me funny looks because Brighton is apparently cool. Um, Brighton is a lovely little town. <laughs> and it's on I the know. beach. I know, I know. I visited it a few times for um, conferences related to game development. Uh, there is a developing Brighton, which is really, really awesome. But it just didn't quite appeal to me. I, I like being outside of cities um okay. I like being closer to nature and um i don't know somewhere more free and open um so then they told me well we have another place it's in the middle of nowhere you probably won't like it i was like same name um <laughs> we ended in stratford so and then well, I, I, would... I wouldn't i wouldn't call stratford the middle of nowhere i mean it's it's like it's got good theatres, for example. The best. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it's 
not very accessible unless you have a car and even then it's like a good two hours from London and the train connections are horrible and it is in the Midlands which some people consider as non-existent but it's really nice I like it here well, good. And, and it, is, it is a lovely part of the world, although it's a bit too close for Oxford for, yeah, well, yeah. I was born in Cambridge, and so I sort of have built into my DNA this sort of general loathing of Oxford and anything within an hour of it, really? <laughs> which is completely silly because there are great places in and around Oxford, and some of my friends live in Oxford, and I need to go and actually visit Oxford properly. But, you know, it's, it's, kind, of, it's kind of like, I guess, if you're born Scots, you're, you're sort of trained not to like the English too much. If you're born in Cambridge, you're trained not to like Oxford very much. Well, I mean, I, I imagine the Scots will depart the island from us very soon anyway. So <laughs> <laughs> Quite possibly. Yeah. Unfortunately there's there's no way of, of kicking Oxford out of Britain, which would be you know, from a Cambridge perspective would just be perfect. Make it its own separate little city state and we can just forget about it. <laughs> <laughs> I know a few people in Oxford that might might not like the idea, but you know we can always start a little hema war between Cambridge and Oxford and see what happens. And who is oh, I, t- I will tell you what will happen: Oxford will absolutely destroy Cambridge because, <laughs> like, I have interviewed so many people who are at or near Oxford, and it seems to be like a, a historical martial arts hub. But I think there's like one historical martial arts club in the whole of Cambridge. Yeah, it's Tees Club, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it could be. I need I need to look into it more because it's only an hour away from me. Um, I'm I'm here in Ipswich, but uh, yeah, I I stay completely out of historical martial arts politics. I just don't <laughs> I don't get involved in any kind of um, inter club organisation or anything like that. I'm just no, I let I let. I let the those that, that want to do such things you know, deal with that. No, I, I, just I think that's an excellent choice. <laughs> I've avoided any hemopolitics for a good while now. Um, I mean, it, it's not, I didn't come to it um, in the meaning of um, club politics, but, you know, you're saying that you love uh, Oxford means, there we go, it's, it's a chance <laughs> for Cambridge and Oxford to deal for it. Well, that is, that is very true. And, and, just just for people who may be in or around Oxford, I don't actually hate Oxford, really. It's just, I don't know, I just have to I just feel a bit suspicious about the place. <laughs> 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 okay, so, all right, let, 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 let's get gently back a little bit more on topic. So, um, how did you get started in historical martial arts? What was the path there? So, you know it when you're little... And you see all these knights like from Lego or movies and yeah. you kind of want to have a sword and maybe a dragon. And then you grow up and you find out you can't have a dragon, but you can have a sword. Yeah. And one day you pick one and you're like, yes, that is my life calling. Excellent. So swords are your life calling, are they? Um, maybe, <laughs> maybe not. I- <laughs> um, it's perfectly all right to say yes. I mean, they're, they're obviously mine. I've been I've been doing this for a living for twenty years. It's like, you know, it definitely yeah, felt that way for a while, and then I kind of uh, got too busy, and now I'm like getting back into it. And I hope okay. you know 
one day I can do more and more of it. It's just okay. there are so many things I I get myself into. So saying anything is my life calling is <laughs> a bit insane, but it's okay. It's definitely so what, one of them. <laughs> what what was that sword that you picked up? Um, um, trying to remember. So there was definitely some in my childhood which were like wooden swords, but mm-hmm. that wasn't enough of an opportunity to get me into anything. There wasn't really anything going on where I was growing up. But then at some point, I, around the age of 20 maybe, decided to buy a bunch of uh, foam swords just to play around with. Okay. And when I finally moved to the UK, um, my ex back then, my partner, uh, found out that um, there was a club in Guildford called uh, Historical Martial Arts Academy, I think, or can't remember. It was Oz, um, Osterwich Club, which I probably butchered his surname. Uh, English Martial Arts Academy. That's oh, okay. Yeah. There we go. Um, and that was mostly English backsword based on George mm-hmm. Silver. Um, and my partner knew I was into swords and was like, hey, here's an opportunity. We watched the um, Back to the Source uh, documentary that was done by Cedric a few years ago. Um, and that's how we kind of knew that it has the name Historical European Martial Arts and knew what to look for. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, then, then I started by doing backsword according to um, Oz's understanding of George Silver and some point after that I came over to fight camp in the UK and I met Keith, Keith Farrell from, um, yeah, and basically he sold me my first longsword and I was hooked (laughs) on longsword ever since as well. So, so are you primarily a longsword person now? Is that your um, weapon of choice? Yes. Um, That's not a. <laughs> there's no right answer. It's like you know, for some reason in my head, I have an idea of you holding us a, a rapier. I don't know why. Um, I, I do actually do research for my interviews for the podcast, um, but for some reason. Um, Although there's probably no reason for it. It's just I have this, like, preconception of you as a rapier person, and that's clearly not true. Yeah, it might be because of um, the pinned image on my Twitter of the rapier I've had. Uh, ah, that's probably it. Okay, yeah, <laughs> that, that, that would explain it. So I say yes with a hesitation because longsword is definitely the weapon I use the most these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I like a lot of weapons. It's just that... There isn't enough time, you know. But I um, have a tip. I, I have some. Yeah, I, I do. I do lots of weapons. I do. You know, hit, looking at it chronologically, I do one, two, three, sword and buckler. I do fury stuff. So that's dagger, long sword, spear, poleaxe. I do rapier, rapier and dagger, rapier and cloak, that kind of stuff. Small sword, back sword, all of that. Right. Okay. The best way to have all the time is to just not have a proper job. 
just, just don't have a proper job because that seriously cuts into your training and research time. Instead, just do swords all the time. It's seriously that it worked, totally worked for me. So you see, um, don't tell it to my employer because um, they they really shouldn't know about it. But my grand plan is I need to stay in the UK for about two and a half, three more years to apply for leave to remain. So then I don't. Mm-hmm stay in the constant risk of getting kicked back to my home country. Right. <laughs> and then, if I've managed to gain enough money to pay my mortgage, I might just really quit my job and figure out how I can spend more time in my hobbies instead of someone else's pocket. Um, that's my grand plan in my head. But That's an excellent plan. Yeah, we'll see how practical it is because... You know, I have so many things I want to do. And as much as I enjoy tech and the video games, uh, I kind of want to do my own thing one day and, you know, like spend my time fencing and woodworking and playing with animals like my puppy over there with the beanbag who is sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that sounds like an excellent life. I mean, I spend pretty much all of my time doing swordy stuff or woodworking or you know doing something like family and friends and what have you so yeah it it totally works and it can be done but there's the 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 trick is getting the money side of things sorted out um but yeah you have already started your own school though right i have yeah so we opened about a year ago give or Mm -hmm. take you know just about when covid hit um perfect timing (laughs) so we had like maybe a couple of months and then COVID was a thing and we had to close. Um, so it was a bit over a year ago because it was just before the closure. Mm-hmm. Um, and now we have reopened uh, literally two weeks ago. So we have had two classes now. We have about seven, eight, eight people, a few more are supposed to join up soon. Need to see mm-hmm. how it all works out. And yeah, maybe... Maybe that's the start of um, the dream coming true. Who knows? Could be. And so what uh, do you guys train? And who's teaching and what are your resources? What is it like? So at the moment, um, I'm the main instructor. Uh, Mm -hmm. Kate is helping me quite a bit. Um, And also one of my senior students, um, Alex, he is actually one of my colleagues back at Unity. Um, who had private lessons for me in the parking lot of Unity during lunch breaks. Excellent. (laughs) um, Helping me with demonstrations and correcting our newbies with their form and stuff. He's really great. Um, And at the moment, we're focusing on longsword Mm -hmm. because just focus on one thing at a time. It's one uh, day a week, two hours, so every Thursday from 6 to 8 p.m. at the local school. And, yeah, that that's really about it. It's it, I try to come with a concept and a few set drills and see how everything is received in class and evolve it a little bit in real time according to okay. how the class goes. So what kind of longsword are you doing? It's a mix. So... <laughs> I've been very hesitant to say I do Lichtenauer or Fiore. Um, I do elements of both. Um, I kind of take, you know, Devin Bowman. Uh, mm-hmm. I take a lot of his approach. Uh, I found his 
teaching really worked for me. And he focuses a bit more on Fiore. Maybe I focus a little bit more on the German side of things, but I like the the way he teaches the systems quite a bit. Um, At the moment, in the two lessons we have had so far, I have avoided using exclusively German or Italian terms, but I have also sprinkled both of them. I think that what we are trying to do is teach really strong fundamentals and concepts why people are doing one thing or the other instead of just teaching plays from a manuscript because plays have their purpose but they're pretty meaningless without the concepts behind them. Um, So, you know, like when in the German manuscript, they, they, it says pretty early on, do not parry like common fencers, but then um, in some of the translation of the Zonhau, for example, it says strike on the sword parrying strongly. And it's like, right. people are really confused, like, wait, but they say don't parry, that's not a parry, that's a counter strike, right? Uh, no, like if it was a counter strike, they'd say you should hit them, you don't. <laughs> they then say, you have a clear line, thrust in, it's, and if they do this and that. So I'm, I'm trying to, to really focus on the fundamentals taken from the manuscripts and assimilate them in training without focusing on the manuscript. So, so it's a bit weird. Like it, it is not as most people seem to do it from my experience. Um, I would agree, yeah. Most people don't do it like that. Yeah, but um, I feel like um, I often, so so I went to like at least five, let me say, so um, in Gishmashal Arts Academy, School of the Sword, in Godalming, um, Davon Ridge in California. Um, Are you trained with Stevie Fick? I did for a bit, yeah. Oh, yeah, Steve and I are old friends. There we go. Yeah. It's a very small world, isn't it? It is. Um, and then Paul Tossetti, um, Mark Hollingshead, Devin Borman. Um, there's, there's someone else that I can't remember. And then for a bit in Oxford with Amelia, uh, who is, by the way, if Cambridge and Oxford came to fight, uh, she has quite a few... Uh, I, I, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I interviewed Amelia for the show a little while ago, and okay, we're recording this towards the end of September. She actually, her episode came out last week, so, so yeah, so I'm, I'm, I know Amelia. Well, at least I know her to have interviewed <laughs> her, and uh, yes, I, I think, I think she should definitely be on the Oxford team anyway. <laughs> I think you should hire her for the Cambridge team if you want to win. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good idea. Um, but yeah, so that's at least eight schools that I've been training with. And then I had my own group when I worked for Google. We literally had like a Google sword group. Uh, oh, wow. trained. Yeah, so, so we, we got to use um, the Google gym to train in there. And then there is Stratford Swords now. And, you know, I, I find that um, when people just teach a play from a book, 
then people get good at repeating the play, but they don't necessarily understand why they're doing it. And then if they go over to sparring and they just try to do the play, they tend to, yeah, it doesn't work. And they tend to try to just force it. And forcing it never works, right? You need to have the right conditions, the right environment for right. a particular play to work. Um, and of course, it depends on how you teach the play. And you can say, if they do this, then do that. And But I find it's actually really, really difficult, especially in the context of the play and in the context of um, most teaching, because you tend to build a very, very strict set of parameters. And then people, you know, when, when you're doing a drill, you have to allow the other person do something. You have to be a collaborative partner slash opponent, right? Like if, if you just deflect the weapon one side, then obviously they cannot thrust in after doing the zone hard because your weapon, your point is well to the side. Um, so I, I, what I try to do here is, is take the concept, say when your sword is in this position, uh, when you have the slope, or as fewer of people tend to call it, the crossing, uh, so you're on top of them, um, you have the advantage in the bind, then you can thrust, then you can proceed. But if you don't have that, you either have to change side, either from the top or the bottom, or potentially step aside and, you know, do a volta stabile or a winding or whatever terminology you want to use and point your sword the other way to, to win that bind. And only then you can strike in. But the many is, they don't explain it. I mean, they say it, but they don't teach you that in, in a very clear way. Or, or at least... Maybe maybe they do, you know, if you dig into it, but there is so much work that people have done um, resurfacing it, re- repeating the plays, and personally, I feel like a lot of what comes out of it is people just doing the plays, but not necessarily doing what the text means. And, you know, of course, I haven't actually spoken to Fiore he it's a little bit too late for me. So maybe maybe you meant something entirely differently and I'm completely wrong, but... Um... No, okay. I, I, have, I have some thoughts for you that might help. Um, first is, you're absolutely right that, that a choreographical in, interpretation of the plays, it's a really useful start because you have to know what the book is actually trying to get you to do, but it's a terrible place to finish. It's yeah. just... It's like, it's like, you know, learning a foreign language, you learn certain set phrases. You don't really know what they actually mean. You just know that when somebody says hello in this language, you reply with this, right? And, and it's, it's sort of learnt by rote. But um, then, so I, I see this a lot in, in historical martial arts clubs that I, that I visit. So you have set drills and you have free play and... There is basically nothing in between. You're either doing a completely choreographical and, to my mind, rather pointless set drill, or you're doing free play. And somehow these set drills are supposed to work in free play, right? So what I do is I have the set drills, um, which are based on plays from whichever treatise we're doing. 
And then I have a systematic way of adding complexity to those drills so that um, you can figure out how the idea in that drill works in these various contexts and a systematic way of creating, or should we say, when things go wrong, because you've arrived there systematically, you can wind it back and figure out what went wrong and then you can fix it. And then any given drill of any level of complexity can be trained in three possible ways. You can do it choreographically, which is where everybody starts. Right, Hold your sword like this, move it like that. Then you can coach each other. So let's say I'm attacking you and you're defending. If I'm the coach, then I'm giving you that attack and adjusting the difficulty level, like maybe what comes before the attack, how fast the attack is, that kind of thing, so that you are failing at the optimal rate. So maybe you're getting the parry to work four times out of five. And so you have to keep, you have to get the parry better and better. You have to learn how to apply it better and better to keep not getting hit. Um, And then of course, or it could be the other way around, like you're coaching me and making a better attack. And so you adjust the, the opportunity to attack so that I can beat the parry maybe four times out of five. Right. Yeah. Right. Or we could do the exact same drill competitively where I'm just trying to throw the attack and hit you with it and good for me if I get it and you're just trying to do the defense and good for you if you get it but so rather than it just going straight into competitive free play you can do competitive drills at a lower level of complexity yeah than exactly. full free play so I have I have this kind of entirely kind of systematized for all the systems that I teach a few basic set drills so that you understand how you're supposed to move, what the basic ideas of the system are, and then a systematic approach to adding complexity and coaching and competing so that free play is just like, it's it's just the next step in a very long series of steps. Yeah, exactly. You have to build it up. And yeah. what you just described is exactly what we're doing, which I've learned a lot of it from Devin Bowen of Academy Dwell. Oh, okay. yeah. He calls it um, adding context, right? So mm-hmm. initially, it's a drill out of context, like you say, a choreographed play, um, where there isn't really much resistance, or maybe there is some in according to the drill, but then you can start adding more context. Maybe we're starting out of distance, and the opponent is approaching, and you need to do a strike in prima tempo, for example, um, mm-hmm. and initially maybe they don't parry, and then maybe they do parry, and you, you just evolve it, evolve the context until it becomes nearly free play, kind of like um, a sparring game where all you're trying to do is this, and all they're trying to do is that, and it just evolves naturally in a competitive manner. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. I'm, I, I'm curious, does that um track at all with what you're doing creating games um i'm not sure so i don't so not specifically anything that i do but a lot of the things that i do see in video games and in game development. So what I do currently is actually I'm not making a game. Well, 
I am making a game on my spare time, which is non-existent, therefore I'm not actually making a game. But um, <laughs> um, I'm currently working on game engine tools. And okay. I have no I idea what game engine tools are. Uh, so uh, to make a game, you need some kind of a software, right? Like We call that mm-hmm. the engine that runs all the graphics and all that. And then right. there is an editor which allows you to place objects in the world, design the rooms in, in the level, um, define what's the enemies, what um, graphic visualization they have, um, how big they are, and mm-hmm. what stats they've got. Um, but then even making a game is really difficult uh, with, without a good approach, right? So you, you might have all the tools, but you don't know how to use them or how to put, to put all the components together. So you, you have graphics, you have physics, um, and you have some kind of gameplay that's supposed to take all of it together and make a cohesive experience. Um, there, there is a lot to go from having a few models on the screen to a game like, I don't know, Battlefield uh, from you know EA Games, where it has hundreds of soldiers running around, shooting each other in multiplayer with helicopters flying and crashing into buildings which actually get destroyed. It, it's not straightforward. And then, no. <laughs> that's the understatement of the century. Yeah, that is not straightforward. <laughs> um, okay. You know, even even in woodworking, right? Um, so I have a chair. I need the chair to be stable. Maybe a butt joint for the legs is not the best idea. Um, Definitely not the best idea. And and then you can learn about the different joints, but you know, you need to know when to use each of them, which is. Maybe a little bit simpler when the chair isn't trying to beat you at the same time as you're trying to assemble it, unlike a person with a sword in front of you. Um, but you still you need to learn the different joints, right? You need to learn how to make them. You need to make mm-hmm. them well. My first tenants, as you've seen on Twitter, were pretty horrible compared to my next few tenants, which my tools and technique improved a little bit. Um, but then it also needs to fit together. What if your mortise is too wide for your tenon, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there is just... How did I get to woodworking from swords and games? Wait, Honestly, wait, wait. I, ha- I have a think, I have a th- sort of feeling that pretty much any conversation, now that you've bit, been bitten by the woodworking bug, any conversation... <laughs> There's this, there's this gravity well created by woodwork and every conversation will naturally fall into it unless you carefully steer it around the edge. It's also right? true for swords. <laughs> well, it's, yeah, it's true for swords also. Okay, so, so you're, you're explaining what you actually do for a living in terms of making tools for game engines. Yes, so okay. um, even the tools um, can be too complicated or obscure to be used coherently or you know maybe they can do what they're supposed to do but they can be done in a way that is way easier for the user to understand so for example right now i'm working on an ai project Uh, so i'm giving people the tool to make what we call a behavior tree and a behavior tree is basically 
you have a graph, a directed graph, so you start at the root somewhere, and then you can say, okay, um, here is a sequence of actions. Maybe my um, agent is how we call a character in the world, so maybe mm-hmm. my uh, warrior is going to run to the enemy, draw their sword exactly in that order, and bash them on the head before shouting a battle cry. Um, but then you have all kind of statements like, um, if the enemy does something, you do something else. If your hit mm-hmm. point is below some amount, maybe you run home screaming and licking your wounds. Um, but without a good tool to represent that and to allow users to do it in an easy way, it can be very frustrating. And you can have the same behavior tree in one tool appear very complicated and you know you you basically have a node and an arrow connecting to another node and an arrow connecting to another node and it takes your entire screen just to see the the arrows rather than what's even happening and you can't understand what's going on or you can actually remove all these arrows and have it read like a book like a, a script to a play and then we found that people's productivity was actually way higher. So it shows how the same code, the, the same um, the same thing at the end, the end result, is arrived to in two very different ways. It's just how we present the, the data and how we let people use it. Um, and it enables people to, to do things much better, much faster, and much more productive. And then if I take it back to fencing, so you have the same tools, but if they are presented to you in a way that actually connect with your learning, with your brain, uh, with your understanding, then you can actually use them in a more efficient way. I feel like I probably made like a very weird tangent that maybe not everyone will will get (laughs) listening to it. <laughs> but but it, but it's true that that like a correction that works perfectly for one student will just baffle a different student, and finding finding the the sort of frames of reference that work for a particular student really just is is a total game changer. Like you have, well, like when I was learning biology A level and I did some biology courses at university, we were doing like cell biology, right? Right. As I mean, I've been woodworking since I was a kid. So the idea of proteins folding themselves up into a specific three-dimensional shape, which enabled them to connect with other molecules in a particular way, which enabled them to do something like, for example, the way an enzyme, like an amylase breaks down a starch molecule. That's a woodworking problem, right? It's, 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 it's the three, all woodwork is basically creating the right, well, apart from archery, um, bow making, is creating the right three-dimensional shape for whatever it is you want it to do. Yes. Yeah. And, and even when you're making, or especially when you're making a, a tool out of wood, like a jig for a table saw or something like that, it's, it's the shape of the thing that you make that determines its function. And that is just exactly how biology is working at the level of protein synthesis. And so those classes, I had no trouble. I was like, okay, yes, this would work. This is woodwork done by clever little molecules at a very small scale. And it was fine. It was easy. Um, and this makes certain sorts too, because, right. like you say, it's just a 3D shape. 
in swords, it's just about position, right? Like, oh, I can't drive my point here because there is a sword in the way. But if I take a sidestep over there, suddenly the sword is not in the way. And I'm in a good position that enables me to do what I need to do. Right. Yes, yeah. swordsmanship is woodwork. And anyone who says differently <laughs> just doesn't understand swordsmanship or woodwork, I would say. It's like, but it, it's a crazy statement because, you know, obviously swordsmanship is not woodwork. But they, another thing they actually have in common, sharp steel. There we go. <laughs> like, okay. Really, one of the main attractions of woodwork is sharp steel. Like, really, really sharp. I must say, when I first properly sharpened one of my chisels and tested it on oak, and I saw it, it just effortlessly peels away the outer layer like an orange, I'm like, what? <laughs> like, I didn't realize it can be this sharp, because when I first got my chisels, they were so bad. But, you know, like I assumed, okay, I bought new chisels. They're like out of the factory. Oh, they, no, they don't come sharp. They don't come no. sharp. They no, because they, do. they be, don't. <laughs> because because no one would buy a chisel sharpened by somebody else. They should be prepped for you, but they shouldn't be sharpened because you you know every woodworker has their own preferences for exact bevel angle and the the, the level of polish and all that sort of thing. So so yeah, I mean they they come the expensive ones come ready to sharpen, and the cheap ones come ready to be prepped for sharpening. And the difference is <laughs> about an hour of work usually per chisel but but yeah having when you actually get it properly sharp like I thought I knew how to sharpen and then I went to my first sort of woodworking job and I got taught to sharpen properly and I was like holy shit and then I went to my second woodworking job thinking I knew how to sharpen and somebody actually showed me how to do it really properly and I was like oh my god holy shit and then I went to my third woodworking job and I already knew how to sharpen. And when I got there, I was like, oh, I have no idea how to sharpen at all. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it, it, it's, it's quite a, it's quite a thing. And actually, for anyone who is listening, who is interested in how steel works and how to sharpen, there is, you might actually like this because as a woodworker, you'll like it. And as a sword person, you'll like it. Absolutely brilliant book by a guy called Ron Hock, who makes amazing woodworking blades particularly for plain irons, and that it's called The Perfect Edge, and it explains sharpening in such depth and detail, and it is so completely not interesting to 99% of human beings, but for those of us that care about sharp blades, it is it is a stunningly good book. So I would, I would totally recommend adding that to your, your library and kind of really geeking out on the whole sharpening thing. That's great. I would have to get it. <laughs> and, you know, I just thought about another tangent between... Mm what we just talked about uh, with you learning how to sharpen and going through three different jobs to, to, I guess, learn more and more and more about sharpening. This is the importance of living traditions, right? Like what we have in historical martial arts is the books, but we don't have a living master or, you know, people who have learned from different masters over the years whose tradition was passed along. So like if I want to learn how to sharpen really well, 
I can now be like, hey, yeah, give me a lesson. <laughs> yeah, sure. We, we should do that. We should do that over Zoom or something where, where we get our sharpening gear out and I'll, I'll show you how to prep a chisel properly. <laughs> yeah, but like... Let's do it. You, you see, you, you went through all of these jobs. You went through these mm-hmm. different living masters who probably inherited the knowledge from like hundreds of years of other woodworkers. Like my neighbor is, is a woodworker and... Some of the tools he has are over 120 years old, which sure. he inherited from his mentor and all the skills and things he learned from him. But when it comes to, to um, let's say, European longsword, for example, we, we don't have that. We have people who have learned it from the manuscript, and then mm-hmm. we have people who learned it from different people. You know, like mm-hmm. I learned from at, at least eight different schools, as I mentioned, and, you know, a bunch of workshops and visits here and there. But they all have maybe learned it in the past, I don't know, five, six decades at most, probably. Honestly, three, I would say. Like, we, we started historical martial arts. The very first wave of which I was a part kind of started around 92, 93. Some people will say 89, 90, but it's, it's that's, that's when it really sort of started to, like, the, the thing that we now call historical martial arts uh, or HEMA or whatever, um, there, were, there were sort of similar things happening earlier, but, but the, the, the kind of the, the idea of, okay, now what we're going to do is take a historical source and actually learn that system of fencing from that source. And that's what we're going to do. That really kind of focused approach came about in the early nineties. So we're looking at about 30 years and for longsword, really about 25. Yeah. So we, we don't really have the context, the, the actual, mm-hmm. um, experience or, or someone to say this is done this way because reasons and we, we're just making educated guests and sure. you know, sometimes they make sense other times maybe not so much and we find out that they're wrong but we we, we have to discover it the hard way we, we don't have the option of going to someone who knows really what's going on yeah but then if we did, let's say we're talking about longsword, which kind of stopped being a thing around 1500. Yeah. So that's, that would be 500 years of master to student and every generation making changes. And so what we would actually have now would be nothing really like what, was, what it was 500 years ago, I would yeah. say. I meant like uh, that's why there is the advantage in woodworking being a living tradition, right? If longsword was actually practiced those 500 years, then yes, it, it, it would have completely evolved and changed. In some ways, maybe, you know, we'd learn more about it. But I, I don't know, I feel like maybe we'd be able to trace it a bit better. Maybe we'd get a bit more of the context. Maybe not. Maybe, maybe I, I don't it know. Became epic. <laughs> I, yeah, I, well, exactly. I think it would have become a modern sport fencing 
thing and it wouldn't really bear much resemblance to to you know, the long sword of the, of the 14th or 15th century. So I actually think that there is enough evidence from the period that we can make as good an idea of how Longsword would actually have been fenced back in the day um, as if we had a living tradition. I would, I would say I would say we are at least on par with a living tradition. And maybe even we have a better idea because we don't have 500 years of like, <laughs> Chinese whispers sort of thing. You know, every generation changing what came before. It's possible, you know, it, but it's, it's maybe more difficult to gather everyone behind the same ideas. Oh, sure. Because, because now everyone has to put a theory in place and say, this is what I believe because X, Y, Z. Um, but, you know, we have a certain number of sources and infinite number of theories to go along with the community. So. Yeah, true. But then um, when a theory is published properly, mm-hmm. uh, it, well, it's like science, right? The whole, the whole idea of science is we have a theory, we, have a, we make sure it's expressed in falsifiable terms, we test it to see if it stands up against like experimental evidence. And if it does, great, then we have then the hypothesis becomes a theory and then we just go keep testing it, keep testing it, keep testing it and see if we can find ways to break it. If we can't break it, it sort of stands as a theory, right? Yeah. And it, that's that's a pretty well-established process these days and applied to um, historical martial arts, we, we see, okay, well, this idea of how this longsword technique violates the laws of physics so it can't be right. Or, the, or these these three alternative um, interpretations of this particular bit of the text. This one matches the text and pictures precisely. This one also matches them precisely, but looks different. This one that doesn't match quite as precisely, so we'll discard that one. And so of these two, okay, now we pressure test them and we test them with sharp swords and we test them at speed and we test them in various different ways. And we come up with an idea of, okay, this is probably the one that was intended. And then, of course, we train the hell out of it and we find out that actually those two competing theories, it was basically just different sides of the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so often it's, they're both right. Yeah, so that's true. But maybe the problem isn't necessarily about um, proving one thing. It's about sure. the information, right? Um, so a lot of the way the community goes from my experience, is on Facebook, for example. Oh, um, stay away from that horrible place. <laughs> I, I, okay, I, th- there's only one place on the whole internet that I will discuss anything sword-related, and that is the Discord channel for my own school, right? Of which, incidentally, all of my guests get an invitation, so if you'd like to join us there, you're very welcome. I would like right? to. But, um, but that's, that is the only place where, where I'll do it, because to my mind... Um, you know, when I want to present my theory of how a thing is done, I present it in a complete way. So, like, in an entire—I've literally last year wrote or, or published an entire book on every one of Longsword, every one of Fury's Longsword plays 
out of armour on foot. Here is the transcription. Here is the translation. Here's how I think it's done. Here's a video of me doing it. And if there's if it's necessary to cross-reference to other bits of the text, then I, I do that. And so there's there are also bits in there from the dagger and from wrestling and what have you. Um, so that anyone with that book knows what I think Fiori's stuff is and why I think it's that way. So if they disagree with me, they're, they're actually disagreeing with what I actually think. Whereas if I just throw a video up on YouTube or whatever and stick it on Facebook or whatever, people might disagree with the first three seconds of the video and go, oh, guy's full of shit, which might be true. But, <laughs> but they're reacting to just a tiny part of what I'm trying to say. So, so basically anything, anything less than like a, an article or a book, I just, I just don't bother with anymore. Haven't done for years. Yeah. So, okay. Two, two things. One, I mm-hmm. need to get a book. <laughs> and, <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> I'll send you a copy. There we go. Thank you. And um, number two is, this is exactly the question then. How does the information spread, right? Um, so in my mind, in my experience, some of the information spreads via Facebook. Some of it uh, is via um, a, certain websites like Wiktenauer and Ho and um, others. But then uh, the, the, there isn't really one cohesive place. Um, there isn't really a place that everyone goes to to find all the publications and discuss and debate to them. Um, you know, like if, if we True. find a new discovery in biology and physics, the textbooks get updated, maybe 20 years later, but they get updated. Um, um, but a lot of uh, what I feel like I'm seeing, at least from my experience on social media, which is not the great way to look at things, but it's a lot of people repeating the same mistakes that a lot of other people have already proven to be, you know, yeah. a mistake. Or um, So let's say maybe the discussion that we had earlier is not about how do we prove something is more correct than the other, because like you said, we have the scientific method to do that. How do we spread the information to mm. the community? How do we align the community that this approach is correct or relatively more correct than another. Yeah, I, I would I would say useful rather than correct mm-hmm. because I mean one thing one of the reasons I, I just quit Facebook is like ages ago is that for the twenty seven millionth time somebody was coming on and saying something about well and this and this and this about Fiore I think it was. And, okay, this is a discussion that we had in about 2004 in the Fury community when the person writing this thing was about five years old, <laughs> right? And, and they were coming up with this amazing theory, blah, 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 which had been, um, I, I forget even, it was so long ago, I forget whether it had been generally accepted 15 years ago or whether it had been generally disproven 15 years ago. But the point was, they were thinking of it as something new when it had been around for at least 15 years, right? And it's because people aren't doing 
the reading because, as you say, there isn't one place to go to find all the reading and it's expensive. Yeah, right? exactly. Because, you know, if, if you... There aren't that many books on Fiore. There's the fantastic... Um, uh, the editions from Freelance Academy Press, which is like the state-of-the-art edition with translation and transcription and a bit different to my translation and transcription, but, you know, that's okay. It's really good. And a whole load of academic sort of background, which is absolutely brilliant. There's that. And then there's, I've written about five books on the subject. And then there's, uh, Bob Charette has got a book out on it, but there's, there's really not that many books on just Fiore. Um, but even so, if you need to read all of them, which you kind of do, um, <laughs> to, you know, to have an informed opinion as, as the, shall we say, the state of the art of, of our understanding of Fiore, where is it published? Well, it's published primarily in books. And how do you, how do you find those books? Well, you can get them from the library, but most libraries don't have them, so they'd have to order them. So you have to persuade the library to buy a copy of the book. Yes. And some of these books are really expensive. Yeah, well, like if, let me rephrase, a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> they're not, for what they are, they're not, I mean, my books are all fairly cheap, but the, um, this, let me, let me dig it out. Cause, if, if it's the one I think you mean, like the one by Greg Miller, right? It's, yeah, that's I mean, the one, it, yeah. It's go. pretty expensive. It's a really good book, but it's not accessible, is it? Yeah, exactly. So it's Flowers of Battle, Volume 1, Historical Overview, and The Guessing. Yeah, that's the one. Which, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a stunningly good book. And, you know, Greg and co did a really, really good job on it. Um, but yeah, how many people have, what is it? hundred and some dollars for a book. It would be great if it was in a library, right? Or, or in, if there was some kind of central library for all the secondary sources that, ha, do you know what? We are coming up with an idea for the, my last question, which is, if you had a million dollars to spend um, <laughs> in historical martial arts, okay, a, a, a central library where anybody can borrow PDFs or whatever of all of the books on the subject, right? Yeah. That's a genius idea, right? <laughs> yeah. Maybe, maybe as a subset of Wittenauer. Yeah, so I actually had that idea a while ago, not, not exactly the same, um, but the idea was how do I make um, historical European martial arts or resources for it, like Wiktenau, more accessible. Mm-hmm. Um, I made a website called Learn Hema. I think the domain is offline by now, but everything is actually in on GitHub, like the source for it, and I was slowly walking through it. And the idea was have all of the different, um, well, major manuscripts and then just assimilate them, um, you know, cut by cut, play by play, guard by guard. So doing like um, a concordance of the manuscripts. Not familiar with that word, but... Oh, oh, for example, there are are four examples of, there are four existing copies of Fiore's Il Fiore Battaglia. Mm-hmm. And so if you have a technique, it might appear in this place in one of them and in this place in another one. And so... Yeah, no. 
so this I feel Wichter now already does, right? There is yeah. actually a view. They've, they've published a concordance for Fury. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but instead, um, describe it in a more modern term, uh, like show, show the stuff from uh, the, the original description, but also then uh, describe it in a modern term and describe how it should work in our current understanding of the play, right? Like what are the concepts? <laughs> okay, there's a huge problem there because people disagree on the interpretation. I agree on that, right. but again, like you so, said, you have your book, you have your video, and people say, oh, this is maybe wrong. But then if if we make it evolving, right, if, if, if it's a community project, and then we can prove with okay. that scientific it, method. It's a good idea, but, okay, what, what you're going to end up with, because, okay, this, this comes back to a discussion that we've had many, many times in the, particularly in the Fiore community, but also elsewhere around certification of instructors. Mm -hmm. Okay. And how do you certify an instructor when you, you know, it, when you don't have a common syllabus, mm -hmm. right? So and basically it's an insoluble problem. Right, because if you have, let's say you mentioned Devon earlier, so Devon Borman, we've got Greg Mallet and say Sean Hayes and me, and we all have different ways of teaching, different ways of training, and in some cases, different interpretations of the actual plays. Okay, now anyone looking at the way we fence and the way we talk to each other and what have you will conclude that we are about 95% in agreement, but those 5% areas do actually matter, right, because they, they affect how we look at sometimes how we look at the whole book. Okay. But um, if Devon, Sean, Greg, and I tried to create a instructor certification program, we would run into the problem of whose interpretation wins. In other words, who, whose interpretation is the basis of the syllabus for which we certify these instructors, right? And the issue there really is also that as soon as somebody has been certified on a specific syllabus, that syllabus is much harder to change. Yeah. So when interpretations change, they're like, ah, it's like, like doctors. My grandfather was a doctor, right? Or a GP. And he qualified in 1917, I believe. And his entire medical training happened at Guy's Hospital in London and took two and a half years. And he was practicing as a GP in the 1980s, right? He lived to be 91 and he was actually still seeing patients in a few weeks before he died, right? How wrong is that in also so many ways? Do you want do you want to be seen by a doctor who hasn't had any medical training for 50 years? Yeah, I mean, right? another problem, we have people on the road driving cars without refresh of their training. It's well, that's also, yeah. I mean, that that's less a problem because the general theory of how you should drive on a road hasn't changed that much. That's true, yeah. Uh, but whereas medical science is, you know, changing all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Um, so, so I'm, I'm very much in favour of the idea of having a central repository where 
students can get access to all of the secondary sources, right? So if somebody writes a book on historical martial arts, whatever that book is, a copy of it goes into this central library where anyone can access it for free. I think that's a brilliant idea. If you set that up, I will send you a PDF of every book I've ever written. Amazing. Right? <laughs> because, well, because it's, it's, you know, it, it's, it's the point of writing the books is, is so that they get out there and get feedback. I mean, and I've, I've actually, I've withdrawn one book and replaced it with a second edition under an entirely new title because it turned into an entirely different book because when that, it was my first translation of Vadi, when that went out, that's when it got the necessary feedback and I found out all the things that were wrong with it and so I withdrew the book, did it again and now there's a much, much better translation of Vadi out there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I am, yeah, I'm completely down with the idea of, you know, anybody being able to, you know, look at the books. And the thing is, Okay, I make an awful lot of my living. Like maybe half of my income comes from book sales. Okay. Right? So the initial thought might be, well, okay, and if I do that, a bunch of people won't buy my books because they can just get a PDF for free. Yeah. But my feeling is that most people aren't like that. If they go there and they get a free PDF of the book, they're going to want a paperback or a hardback, or they're going to end up coming to my website and maybe buying one of my online courses. So, so, you know, from a business perspective, it's, it, it could be a bad idea, but it's probably a good one. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things that if they wouldn't buy it because it's there, maybe they wouldn't have bought it anyway. Exactly. And maybe... Maybe because it's now there, it can point them in other ways to support makers financially. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I think it's a, I think it's a great idea. Um, so, we just need to persuade Greg. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> that might be a bit more difficult. I think his book is an order of magnitude more expensive. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, but that actually, that actually. That argument goes the other way because um, that book is is a lot more expensive, right? Or well, expensive suggests it's, it's overpriced. No, it, it costs a lot more money, right? Yeah. Um, so people might want to make sure that it's actually going to be completely worth all of that money, and so downloading a complete PDF of it is yeah. a great idea. Bringing it back to woodwork, you must have heard of a guy called Christopher Schwartz. No. no. Have you not? Oh, my God. Oh, oh, oh you're in for a treat. All right. I'm a new. He's written, he's written several books. Um, the Anarchist um, uh, Tool Chest is one. The Anarchist Workbench is another. Um, right. Great I, I was linked to one of his books. I did not connect the name. Okay. Uh, and he publishes his books through his... He has a small company called Lost Arts Press. Okay. I, will, I, I found the blog for right. that. Uh, and, and, send it to me. Yeah, and so he has the entire interior of his... Um, I think it's the Anarchist Workbench, his latest book. 
you can you can download the entire PDF for free. Right. And still the book has sold out its first print run and da, 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 da. because now, you know, people who can't afford it will just download the PDF and still have the information. Yeah. Right. And people who can afford it are like so impressed by his generosity. They buy the book on principle. There we go. Yeah. And people who wouldn't buy it would find other ways to get it anyway. So exactly. Let's make information more accessible and hopefully by being good to people, we encourage them to give back as well. Yeah. And okay. And having it, having a central repository of all the secondary sources means that hopefully it would encourage people to actually publish their interpretations in a complete and thought out way. Mm-hmm. So rather than just, okay, this is how I do a Zornhow video, five minutes of me doing my Zornhow my way, but actually like presenting it in a written form, in a form that's like polished enough that you could actually publish it, perhaps with video clips, perhaps not, um, depending on how you want to do it. But, but then people can interact with the whole idea, not just the one little facet of it. Exactly. And so I think what you described right now, that touches what we should do because there is the 5% that people are not fully agreeing on that matters mm-hmm. quite a bit. But in my opinion, in addition to that, we still have the 95% we do agree on. And then... Oh, you know, the select people that we mentioned before do agree on. And while the 5% is perhaps important, we can put that. So if, if we have the specific pages on the specific things, we can say this, for example, has different views and currently, you know, is, is not fully resolved. We can present the multiple views on that page so that we actually share more of the information in a concise way. Because say um, I now buy your book, I now have um, your opinions on it, but now I have to buy, let's say, Devon's book or Greg's book, which are structured in a completely different way, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and Probably. Yeah, and you, know, you need to then find the right information, right? You you need to index it. You need to make the parallels. uh, You need to make all the connections. And then you need to, like, make a chart of the differences, you know, either on paper or in your head. But if I go back to the previous one where it's still in an ordered manner, and maybe there will also be disagreement about the order, but there we can stick to what the original sources had. Um... And we say, this is a point of contention. Here are some differences between variety of well-researched practitioners. And then we can also encourage people to see, okay, this is what we need to resolve. This is like where uh, we have 5% that needs alignment. Um, so I think maybe this is a, in a way to hasten research to to accelerate it not hasten okay but that that is a gigantic amount of work 
Well, it's one million pounds slash dollars, right? <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that won't even scratch the surface because you've got it because there are there are what seven centuries of source material. Yeah. Um, which can be loosely, I suppose, we can we can skip out the twentieth century stuff, I guess, because a lot of that's in living memory. So, and if we skip out the nineteenth century stuff because it's basically classical fencing, which is really well documented, we don't need to worry about that. So if we go just like the 500 years from 1300 to 1800, then, then still we have dozens and dozens of styles and sources and languages and whatever. It, it's, and Let me take you back to woodworking. Uh, okay. When you make a table, how many joints do you do each time? Uh, well, if I'm, if I'm making... Well, I, I've just made a pair of bookcases and I cut all of the dovetails at once for both bookcases. So I would do all the joints first and then, uh, because, you know, it's a process like, you know, chopping out dovetails, um, like cleaning out the, the waste in between the tails, you, you stack up all of the, all of the pieces which have had their saw cuts and you go chunk 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 chunk. Oh my god! The person transcribing this, poor Katie, she's going to absolutely hate me for all this, <laughs> <laughs> all this onomatopoeic chunking, right? So you, you so you, you then, and, then, and then you flip them all over, yeah. And then then you then you flip them all over and and do all the other sides, yeah. That way that way you get the whole thing done in maybe half the time it would take if you did yeah. it get it's each, like a finish line. each joint yeah, yeah kind of um, but then when if we make such a project right it will have to be one one focus at a time right we can't go into all sure. the styles start with maybe the most um, famous ones like Fiore Lichtenauer then move on mm-hmm. to you know um, well like a concordance sort of this sort of thing for like Fabris, Giganti, and Capoeira would be great mm-hmm. because yeah. you know they are contemporary with each other. It's a they have very similar theory, but very different, apparently very different sort of practical approaches. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, it, it's. But again, who's going to do that work? Because that yeah. is that is really high level and difficult work to do. Well, you know, a lot of um, what happens in our community is done by the community, right? A lot of the best projects are started and then continued by a joint effort, right? If we can show an example, like a small example um, that brings value and invite other people to edit, maybe it will succeed. Maybe it won't, you know, but at least we can say we have tried to accelerate I will. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Although, um, I'm reminded of of Michael Chidester's interview for this show, where he described the kind of the origins of Wigtonauer, and it, it basically it started out as something similar to what you're describing as a kind of concordance, where he figured out that if they got copies of the various manuscripts and transcribed them or whatever, they could sort of come up with a sort of central interpretation that was consistent and that side of it i I need to check him in michael because i may be misremembering but that (laughs) side of it 
absolutely abjectly failed and didn't work. Um, and there may be useful lessons there, or it may be that this sort of thing doesn't work, or it could be just it doesn't work when it's done that way. Um, but then, you know, what do we have out of that? Well, we have the mighty, glorious, and fabulous Wiktonow.com, where you can get copies of just about every historical fencing manual ever discovered and in many cases transcriptions and translations and stuff as well mm-hmm. so it, yeah it's a monumental thing um so it does sound like the sort of thing where if it fails it will fail usefully yeah at least we learn right at least we have the information out there for some people that might be into it and the rest of the community will ignore it but the rest of the community ignores a lot of things anyway, right? It's about honestly, I don't, I don't pay the slightest attention to the community as a whole. What I do is I follow Neil Gaiman's advice. I do my best to make good art, mm-hmm. right? And I put it out there, and the people that like it come to me, and the people that don't like it don't. But I just, I, I, I'm not sufficiently socially adept person to just to manage these multiple sort of yeah i i don't even really think of like the swordsmanship community as a whole there's sword people who i make this podcast for and do various other things for and there's non-sword people but within the whole kind of sword people demographic there is well we have everything from like nice people to raging white supremacists <laughs> right so i'm certainly you know not interested in dealing with the entirety of the population that is interested in sorts yeah so then can it even fail because if you don't care about aligning everyone behind it and all you care about is improving the accessibility of the information and the quality of the information out there then it doesn't matter if, you know, some subset of people don't like it. I think just by doing that's it... That's very true. Yeah, that is, that is very true. Okay. So am I right in thinking that if I ask you what is the best idea you've never acted on, this is your answer? Um, well, I did act on it. I didn't finish it. Okay. <laughs> um, I don't know. This is a really tough question. You know, I'm a pretty impulsive person. Um, there are not many ideas I don't act upon. <laughs> um, I, this is probably the one question from your um, set of questions, which I don't have a good answer to. But maybe this is an idea that I need to act more upon. I just need to distract my squirrel brain long enough to sit down and do it (laughs) yeah i have brain squirrels myself um and the really hard thing is you know starting things is easy but it's getting them out the door like okay i don't know if you heard i did um yeah i know you studied some george silver i did a an audio book of paradoxes of defense this year i did not have that okay so and and so what happened was on a Sunday morning, I thought, huh, Paradoxes of Defense might make a good audio book, <laughs> right? By Monday, I'd hired a narrator. And then a week later, I thought, hang on, he's Elizabethan. 
1599, Peak Shakespeare, We Should Get It Done, by Ben Crystal, who is a Shakespeare actor, Shakespearean actor, who specialises in original pronunciation. Oh, right? So I contacted Ben Crystal's agent, and I got an eye-watering quote back, and I thought, yeah, fuck it, let's do it. And so then I needed to raise some money, so we had a crowdfunding campaign, and four months after my first idea, the product shipped. Right? But... But here's the thing. It was a massive distraction, right? Because what I ought to have been doing is working on my next book. It was a huge, right? But, but still, but the thing is, the hard part of that whole thing was the final stages of getting the recordings into the correct format and just edited and everything just right for audiobook but now you have the experience on how to do it and the next one could be a lot easier no no i've had the experience yeah. of how to do it and i don't think i'm ever doing it again because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it was if anybody else would like to do a, a historically martial arts themed audiobook find a historical source and create an audiobook out of it i'm happy to advise but i don't think i ever want to do that again right but yeah it's it's yeah, I'm similarly impulsive. You get this idea. It's like, oh, that's a good idea. And it was a good idea. And it is a good idea. And I've got these two audiobooks of Paradox of Defense, one in modern pronunciation, one in original pronunciation, and I'm really pleased with them. But, oh, God, I, you know, I could be halfway through my next book by now. Yeah, but is that bad? I mean... No, not really. But it was, it was very painful. <laughs> it was very painful. Like, because once you put that much money into a project, you have to finish it to get yeah. the money back. Yeah, right. but that's an incentive, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, but <laughs> I, I books are easier. But even finishing books is hard. It, yeah. Right? Because you could always add a bit and fix a bit and change a bit or whatever. Um, and yeah, that the the really hard bit is is basically the last week. Everything after that is okay, but the last week is just mentally difficult. Yeah, we have a saying in game development that the last 5% is like the 95% before it. Right. Yes, and it, it's true. Um, like when people write their first book, okay, they, they say, ah, I've written my book. And what they mean is they finished the first draft, right? And that's like, oh, bless. Yeah, that's really good. Oh, well done. And you don't quite have the heart to tell them that they are about a quarter of the way there. Because <laughs> in their head, finishing the first draft is writing the book. It's like, no, 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 no. Finishing the first draft is, is getting your raw materials from the woodyard. Now you actually have to make the furniture. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I'm uh, reading um, a friend's, uh, what's the, the word, pre-publication copy, yeah. giving him some feedback and stuff. And as I'm doing this, and you know, I'm really enjoying giving feedback. Um, one part of my mind is like, oh, this, this is, you know, th- this is really cool, and here's some ideas, and here how I might do them. And then I'm like, this is really great that I get to give somebody else the feedback on how to improve the product instead of yeah. doing it myself, <laughs> because, you know, oh yeah, th- th- this looks pretty simple, you know, this. Chapter is, is really simple. I could do it. Well, I'm so glad somebody else is doing it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
So how did you get into woodwork? What made you decide to take it up? So you know how I, I do video games? Yeah. And swords is kind of like games. There is a theme in here. Um, yeah. I mean, don't use a sharp sword for a game, and even a blunt game sword without protection. But I really like games, board games, video games, whatever. Mm-hmm. And I play a lot of board games, and I wanted to have a board gaming table. One day I looked online and I saw, you know, there, there is like a website, boardgamingtables.com and there are various others. Anyway, they didn't ship to the UK. Um, and anyway, they cost like five, six thousand dollars for a table. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. Um, I could buy the materials and the equipment and gain a new life skill while I make a table and then, uh, you know, double the amount of money later, give or take now. Not actually double the amount of money later, but, you know, (laughs) Um, obviously this is not how the world works. You actually need a skill to do stuff, which skill takes time, but I'm really enjoying it. Um, Since then I've made a bunch of stuff, including this really crappy yet functional Airbrushing booth right down there okay. in my background. That probably will not show the podcast. Um, <laughs> no, but I, I can describe it it, it. it looks pretty well made from here. <laughs> and it's even got a fan on the top. It's got a fan on the top to suck out the fumes. Yeah, Brilliant. exactly. And there is a duct there against the wall, which then when I actually have it on the table, the duct gets connected, the fan sucks the fume, the duct leads to the window, which is... Now visible. Oh, wow, okay. That's very uh, clever. There we go. Uh, and that's just made from, you know, a, a bunch of MDF cut with a plunge saw and a few screws. And um, I feel like while it took me uh, maybe a good year to learn how to make a board gaming table properly, I've learned so much and I've gained so much confidence that it is a worthwhile life skill. I mean, before I started doing that, I was even intimidated using the drill. Like, that's insane. Um, <laughs> well, but, but, but natural, because, you know, drills are scary and you can hurt yourself with them and you can accidentally drill through a power cable and, you know, a bit of... Um, one should treat most tools pretty much the way one treats a sword. You know, yes, it's... Yes, the amount of respect and passion. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, I must say, like, as as a first proper woodworking project, a board gaming table is. Um, let's let's put it this way: if I was creating a course to teach beginners woodwork, <laughs> that would not be the first project. That would be probably the tenth. See, because as, as things get bigger, um, there's, there's a sort of natural scale of woodworking projects where below a certain size, everything is more difficult because it's really small and above a certain size everything is more difficult because it's bigger and the leverage acting on it is much greater but there's a kind of happy sort of middle size of something maybe should we say about 30 centimeters by 50 centimeters by 20 centimeters something that will fit in there that is like convenient like a box (laughs) like a box or a pot stand or uh, I don't know when I was doing woodwork at school yeah our first thing that we made was a pot stand which was two bits of wood 
crossed with a housing joint. So basically they're across, and so they're kind of coplanar, and an octagon of plywood that was glued and nailed on top. That was it. <laughs> that was it. That, that was the project. My right. first project was a hexagonal board gaming table. <laughs> so not even a rectangular one, just to make it a little bit more complicated. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's, that's brutally hard. Yeah, um, well, the table is happily working now. Um, right. Well, the, the third iteration of it anyway. Okay. <laughs> Um, the leg needed two iterations, one to um, stand, the second not to fall when someone tries to use the table. <laughs> yeah, a table that you can actually put stuff on is generally better than one that you can't. <laughs> um, and now there would be a third iteration of the leg to just make it prettier. I mean, the second one is functional and okay. It's pretty, you know, traditional and and all. But um, I, I kind of like contemporary design, so uh, the, the third iteration is actually going to be a copy from, I don't know if you know Tamar 3x3, she has um, a channel and a blog, and she did, um, she did a round table, but with a really cool hexagonal leg design, and I saw it, and I was like, this is going to be a perfect fit for okay. me, and now that I can do mortise and tenons, I feel like um, it's within my, my realm of reach now. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> so basically, oh, yeah. five years with a completed photo. <laughs> okay, That's, that seems fair. And, um, and then, of course, we can, we can get into depth and detail, like finishing techniques and inlay techniques. Because once you can actually build the thing, then you can, then you can decorate it. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and inlays are super fun. Although, actually, um, there's a table that you should probably look up. God, we're going way off topic. Never mind. Uh, there's a table that it's, it's um, I forget what they call it, but a, uh, a YouTuber, she's a robotics engineer and does rockets and stuff like that and is also a qualified pilot. And basically, she's totally living her best life. Her name is Zyla Foxlin. XYLA um, Zyla Foxen and she has this YouTube channel um, and she made, makes, made this table which appears to float in space okay now, it wouldn't work as a gaming table because it, it, it's too unstable for that but the way it, the way it kind of sits there it appears to have no legs Okay, can you send it to me? <laughs> yeah, 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 sure, sure. I, I, I will look it up, and and of course we will put it in the show notes as well, so the curious listeners can, can, can have a look. Yeah. In fact, you know, I don't spend any time at all on doing online sword stuff, right? The YouTube videos, I just don't because I just can't. But craft stuff. That's where I spend my, my time online. If I'm, if I'm like fooling around on YouTube, it is woodworking channels and generally sort of craft channels. I first came across Zyla because she made a canoe out of cedar strips. Okay, that's cool. Um, which is really cool. Right. And, and she, but she does all sorts of 
fantastic projects. One of the most interesting ones, um, she she won a beauty pageant or she got a crown in a beauty pageant and she's a bit ambivalent about beauty pageants and, and you know, being a feminist and all that kind of stuff. And so she sent her crown into space with okay. a camera watching it all the way up. And you can actually see this this footage of the crown with a background of space. <laughs> right? And it, it was on a weather balloon, so it kind of, when it got completely, sort of not quite out of the atmosphere, but really, really, really incredibly high up, I forget the numbers and I'm not an astrophysicist, so um, she explains it all on her on a video of course the balloon then explodes because there's not enough yeah. pressure to keep it together and then the whole thing comes back down again so it's not still in space it came back down again yeah, but, yeah. Um, but she's she sent her beauty pageant crown into space which I think is a, just a really cool thing to do I love it yeah um, okay now I think we better wrap this up or, or we're going to end up end up chatting for, for, yeah, for, for like two more hours about woodworking stuff um <laughs> So, uh, thank you very much for joining me today, Shani. It's been lovely to meet you. Thank you so much for having me, and I'm sure to see you around. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Shani. You can find the episode show notes at guywindsor.net forward slash podcast. While you are there, you can sign up to my mailing list, and I'll send you a free copy of my book, Sword Fighting for Writers, Game Designers, and Martial Artists. I'd like to thank my patrons on Patreon for their kind support of the show. It lets me know that you care about the show and want it to continue. You can join us there for behind-the-scenes content and to submit your questions for future guests. That's patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. Thanks, as always, to Andrew Lawrence King for the Baroque harp accents originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defence audiobook project. Join us next week when I'll be talking to Jared Wilson, host of the Martial Thoughts podcast, presenter at CombatCon, and a longtime practitioner of Japanese swordsmanship and other martial arts. You definitely don't want to miss that, so subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcast from. And if you have a minute, please do rate the show and even leave a review. We've got some lovely five-star ratings there. Uh, we could use a few more reviews if you have a moment. Um, so thanks for listening and I will see you next week. Mm-hmm.